Well, the story is told of a young, actually not a young bishop, a bishop from many years ago who was visiting a young president of a a small religious college in the Midwest United States. And he was staying with this young president, and after sharing a wonderful dinner with the president and his family, this bishop exclaimed, the millennium of the Christ reign on earth cannot be far off. Because just about everything has been discovered that can be discovered in nature, and every invention that man can conceive of has been invented. Now, I don't know where he got that criteria for the millennium of Christ, but whatever. But this young president uh, politely disagreed with this older man and said that he believed that many other inventions would be invented and many other discoveries made over the years ahead. Well, this angered the bishop who challenged the young president and said, okay, then name me one thing that is yet to be invented, or one innovation that is yet to be discovered. And the man said, well, I believe that within 50 years, man will fly. And now this this really bewildered the bishop, and he he declared, nonsense! Only angels are intended to fly. Only angels are intended to fly. Now the funny thing about this story is the bishop's last name was Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. He had two young boys at home at this time named Wilbur and Orville Wright, who had become world famous for inventing what? The airplane. (laughs) And so these these sons of their fathers, they had a vision much greater than their fathers. They had the same kind of eyes, the same kind of brain, the same five senses, but when it came to seeing what could be, they could envision the future, while their father and many others around them could not. As leadership guru John Maxwell would say, he said, they lived under the same sky, but they didn't have the same horizon. They didn't have the same horizon. Well, as a church, I believe it's very important, it's really extremely important that we have a vision for our church as well, and for the future. Sometimes we might end up like Bishop Wright here, who couldn't see what could be in the future. It's important for us to understand our vision. It's also important for us to understand our purpose, our mission, our values as a church. What's important to us? Why are we here? Do you know why you came to church today? Why'd you do it? Do you know why we do church at all? Why we gather? Do you know why the church exists? How about, do you know, or can you envision what is possible in our church? Can you see that? We're going to go to God's Word today at this time, and we're going to see, I think, some answers to these questions of why we're here, what can happen in us. And the passage we're going to be based out of today is in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles or you got one on the way in, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, in the middle of the New Testament, be in chapter 3. But we'll also be flipping around to several other passages today to get a well-rounded picture of what the Bible says is our mission and our vision. So turn with me there, and as you do, I'll pray for us as we approach God's Word this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the beautiful weather that you've given us in this time and for each person who's come in these doors. We pray that as we look into your word, that your spirit would be speaking to us, be challenging us, teaching us, guiding us into your truth, showing us what you want us to see today. 
Help us to catch a vision for what you could do, because really we're nothing without you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people, I think, get a little bit turned off by church mission or church vision statements, because they don't see them quite as very biblical. After all, nowhere in the Bible does it say, Thou must have a vision statement and a mission statement as a church. You have to have them posted on your wall, on your website. This is very important. It doesn't say that. However, the idea of mission, a mission for the present, and a vision for the future is not foreign to the pages of Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself cast a vision for his disciples as he told them about the church. The church was a brand new idea to them. They didn't know what it was going to be. And he said... The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. He cast a vision for them. And he, he gave them a specific mission for them to accomplish while on earth, which we'll look at later. In fact, there in all of Scripture, not just with Jesus, but with Paul and others in Scripture, there are missions for the present and there are visions for the future all over. In the passage we're in today in Ephesians, Paul's going to hint at all the reasons I believe the church exists. And to get an accurate picture of what Paul is going to say here, I want to begin reading actually back in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, you might need to turn back a page, verse 19. Let's begin reading there. It says this, You, speaking to the church, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is saying here that if we have believed in Jesus by faith, we are part of his household. We're part of his church. We've become a dwelling place for God. Really, the church is a building, but it's not a building of bricks and mortar and stone. It's a building made of people, for God to dwell in, out of you and me. So that's what this is saying. And then he continues, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ. So this here, he keeps going and he says that an age-old mystery has been revealed to the church. Something that people could not grasp before. And this mystery is the gospel. The gospel, that through Jesus' death on the cross, he says here, this is the mystery, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So this is the gospel, that through Jesus, he has brought together many people through his death, through his resurrection, into his body. And that anyone can be saved through this. That's what he says. Really, in the church, everything revolves around this, around the gospel. The fact of what Jesus did for us, that's what everything revolves around. 
And so as we come to our mission, we ask the question, well, why is a mission and a vision so important for us? I believe where we don't see our mission as a church, we become misguided and we get off track. We do many things that we don't need to do or even shouldn't do because we get distracted from our mission and our purpose here on earth. And when we don't see a vision for the future, we can easily become discouraged. We can feel like nothing will ever change, nothing will ever get better. It's easy to get discouraged when we don't see what could be. What each of us believes about the church, I think, truly is a crucial matter. So why are you here? Why are we here? Why is the church here? As Paul continues in this passage, this is where we're going to focus today in verse 7 and onward. I think we're going to see some very clear reasons for our existence. I'm going to read these and then we'll talk about some ideas, okay? Starting in verse 7, it says this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence." I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. First reason I want to point out to you in this passage that we just read, the reason for our existence is this, that God's church exists to make disciples. We are part of God's universal church, and as such, we exist as a church to make disciples. Paul says here in verse 7 that there was a specific time that he became a servant of this gospel. He said, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And he says later on that his job is to preach the gospel to everyone who hears it. Look in verse 9. It says, and make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God created all things. We're going to be skipping around this passage, so keep going with me. In verse 13, he says there's a time that we must put our faith in Jesus. He says, I ask you therefore, oh sorry, not 13, I'm not sure which verse I meant here, let's see. Um, Sorry, verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God. So we all have to take, put our faith in Jesus. And then in verse 16 and 17, this is really key, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp, and he goes on to explain the love of Christ. This is really 
the, he prays, first of all, that the Spirit will empower us that, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we would be rooted and established in love. I believe this is explaining the two steps of our salvation. Right? He says there's the two stages to really becoming a disciple of Christ. There's the conversion the, and where we become Christians, where we put our faith in him initially. The justification. And then there's the growth and the sanctification where we continue to grow in holiness and in likeness to Christ. This plays out in the church in what we call evangelism and discipleship. The evangelism of reaching people for the very first time and discipleship of growing them to be stronger disciples of Jesus. This really needs to be the the goal or the mission of the church as a whole. And why do I say this? Well, this is the mission that Jesus gave the church as he left earth. We call it the Great Commission. Literally, right before Jesus left earth to go to heaven, after his resurrection, he prepared his disciples to begin the church, and he gave them this command. Back in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Did you see Jesus' mission for the church here? This is why he put us here on earth, that we would make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's evangelism. Go into the world, make disciples, baptize them, and then helping them to grow. It says teaching them to obey. Everything I have commanded them, or commanded you. Helping people grow in their devotion to Jesus. The Greek word for disciple means a committed learner or follower. So someone who learns and who follows. So a disciple of Jesus would learn from and about Jesus, and then they follow them with their life. That's a disciple. One time when I was probably about seven years old or so, we, me and my siblings were out for a walk in the neighborhood, and by the time, we were probably about 50 houses away from our house, and we found a cute little kitten on the side of the road. And we didn't know where this kitten came from, but it seemed to like us. It came up to us, was purring, and as we turned around to go home, it started following us home. And every little while, it would stop, it would hesitate, But then by this time, we had decided as these young kids that we liked this kitten following us home. So as soon as it would hesitate or stop or slow down, we would start coaxing it. (laughs) Here, kitty, kitty. Come on, kitty, kitty. And so it would start following us again. And soon, we had made it all the way home, and the kitten was sitting in our front yard. Now, we didn't really think this through very much, because my mom is allergic to cats. (laughs) So there was no way on earth that we were going to be able to keep this kitten. And besides the fact that we found it basically in someone's front yard. So (laughs) we didn't think this through at all. And as soon as my mom saw it in our yard, she made us take it all the way back to where we found it. But I was thinking about this this week, and I think this kitten's trip from where it started to our home was a bit like our journey of discipleship in our lives. See, there's this time that in our lives we meet Jesus. At some point, he saves us. And then we start following him. And there may be seasons that we slow down, but he's there coaxing us along, helping us grow, helping us become disciples of him until we reach his home. 
in heaven. That's the way I think that our journey is like as disciples of Christ. Now, as I say, the church's job is to make disciples. Some of you might think, you're saying it's our job to make disciples, but as we've looked at Scripture before, we've seen that it's really God's work to make disciples. We've seen that it's Him that makes disciples. So why are you saying that we have to do something that only God can do? And it's true. We cannot save anyone. We can't even save ourselves. Only God can cause someone to become a disciple and to grow as a disciple. However, for some reason, we see in the pages of the scripture, he wants us to be involved in his work. He wants us to be involved in his mission. And so, while only God can do this, he wants us to be involved. And we can't do this on our own. So when we strive to make disciples, we're really joining in what he's already doing in people's lives. We're joining in the work that he's already doing around us. And we can only do so in the Holy Spirit's power. That's why Paul prays here. He doesn't say, be disciples of Christ. He said, he prays that through Christ, we would have, that we, he would dwell in our hearts through faith and that he would be rooted and established in love. This isn't on our own power. We pray for that to happen. Jesus' command for us to make disciples is really the reason that we have many of our ministries in church. This is why we do outreach events like the picnic we held yesterday. We want to see other people become disciples of Jesus. This is why we baptize people. When Jesus gave the command, go into all the world, make disciples and baptize them. We take this seriously. And if you're not baptized, this really should be the first step of obedience for you as a follower of Christ. But this is why we do it. It's the first step of discipleship. Making disciples is why we have kids' ministries or youth ministries, because we want to develop disciples of Jesus at every age, all the way up. Through our worship services, we try to help people come to Christ and to grow in their faith. It's one of the reasons we do this. Making disciples is a major reason we have small groups, why we're encouraging you to sign up for them. Because in order, they help you to grow in your faith, to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. If you're not part of a small group, we can't promote this enough. There are great ways for us to... It's really, it's one method. It's a method that we're using to make disciples, but it's a great one, we feel. And as small groups have fellowship together and study God's word, pray together, pray for one another, the members of the group really have an amazing opportunity to be discipled by one another. I want you to imagine with me what our church really accomplishing this goal would look like. I want you to picture, let's picture this first. Picture one of your closest friends who's not a believer yet. Okay, maybe you're witnessing to them, maybe you're not. But picture them, okay? Imagine that person standing or sitting beside you in church, worshiping God with their whole heart, because they became a disciple of Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? Don't think small. Think about multiple of your friends or family members who need him. Doing this, it can happen. It's through Jesus. Here's another thing for you to picture. Picture one of the most mature or one of the Christians that you most respect 
in the church. Okay? And because of how honorable they are or how godly they are in their faith. Now picture yourself one day in the kind of role they have. Picture yourself having a faith as strong as theirs, having an amazing influence on people around you. That's having a vision for what could be. It's having a vision for what could be in this journey of ours making disciples. You might ask, if this is so important for us to make disciples, then how do we do it? How do we accomplish this? Well, I believe biblically there are two main ways that we see as a church the word to make disciples. What are these two ways? What we'll see here is that God's church exists to proclaim truth and to love people. We exist to love people and proclaim the truth. These are our methods for making disciples in our church. I put these two things together for a reason. I could have split them up. But in the past, I've said that these are the two thing, two legs that a church must stand upon. You can only hop around on one foot for so long. And if the church has love without truth, they really become watered down or worthless. If a church has truth without love, they often end up doing more harm than good, saying the right things, but hurting people in the process, and really even driving them away from Jesus. Because people don't want a part of that truth. So we need these things in balance. We need to stand upon these two legs. In Ephesians 3, we can see both love and truth need to be huge in the church. Read with me in verse 8. It says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was now that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see that, that God wants, through the church, his manifold wisdom to be made known. That was in verse 10. This is the proclaiming of the truth, the preaching of the, what he says here is the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the proclaiming of truth. And then we get down to verse 17 where he prays this, and I pray that you being rooted and established in what? Love. Be rooted and established in in love, and this is based on the love that Christ showed us. It says, being rooted and established in love, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's talk about truth first for a minute. What is the truth that we proclaim. What are we called to proclaim as the church? Well, we proclaim the truth of the Bible. We know this is God's truth. Most specifically, or the, the chief truth in the Bible, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible centers on. And this is the truth we proclaim. In Colossians 1, verse 28, it says, We, the church, proclaim him. Speaking of Christ. So we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's how we proclaim him. So that 
we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's making disciples. See that? That we claim to have the absolute truth of Christ is probably the number one reason of opposition from the world today. That we claim to have the only truth. And you might even think, how could we claim this? How could we claim to have a monopoly on truth? Isn't that arrogance of us or selfish of us to do that? In John 14.6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Two things here. I've said them before. I know I've said them before, and I'll say them again. But first of all, it is not arrogant for us to proclaim this truth if it's true. Okay? It's not arrogant if it's true. People have to really wrestle with the fact of whether to believe Jesus told the truth or not. Did he tell the truth, or was he a liar? If he lied, then yes, we are arrogant in proclaiming this as truth. But if he told the truth, then it's not being arrogant in the least. Because we would be spreading a message that has life or death implications for everyone. That's not arrogant. Second thing, it's not selfish to claim that we have the truth if we are sharing it. It's not selfish to claim we have the truth if we're sharing it. If we keep this truth that everyone needs to hear to ourselves, it's more than just selfish. It's despicably and horribly self-absorbed. But if we're sharing it with others, proclaiming the truth as we should, it's not selfish. We're not keeping it to ourselves. The world needs to hear. If you're here with us today and you haven't heard this message before, this is new to you, here it is in a nutshell. We have all sinned against God. We've all done this. And we deserve to be punished for these sins. But God himself came to earth in human form, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. He bled and died to take away our sins. He's showing us undeserved grace, undeserved mercy, undeserved salvation. In the chapter right before we're looking at today, in Ephesians 2, verse 12, it says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. And then by dying for us, Jesus made a way for us to be brought into his family. And then after he'd been dead for three days, he rose again, proving his point. <laughs> he vindicated his death on the cross. It's, he, and he can offer us new life through that. If only we'll turn to him. Repent of our sins. Turn to him and ask him alone for salvation. This is the gospel we proclaim. This is the gospel we want you to hear and respond to and be transformed by. Don't leave this place today without making sure you're forgiven by God's grace. That's the truth we proclaim.
But here's the thing. This truth, what it proclaims, is how great God's love is. How amazing God's love is for us. If we do not, in turn, love other people because of this truth, we get it wrong. The gospel should inspire us to love one another more, to love other people more, because God showed us infinite love when we were completely undeserving. And if He showed us this, who are we to withhold that from other people? We do this by sacrificially loving other church members in our body. We do this by sacrificially loving people outside our church who are not yet believers in hopes that they will respond to Christ's love for them. John 13.35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. 1 John 4.10.11 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus even called loving other people the second greatest commandment ever given by God. He said, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is the second greatest commandment ever given. So when we proclaim truth and we love one another, these are displayed in so many different ways in our church or in in God's church, universally. See, we proclaim truth every time we look into Scripture, every time we read Scripture. Scripture takes a very important place in everything we do. You know this. In our prayer meetings, in our small groups, in our worship services, even in our songs, we want truth to be proclaimed in everything as often as possible. And love. The need to love one another is why we encourage you to serve one another, to minister to others. If you're a Christian, you need to find a way to serve other people, to minister to them. This shows them love. Love is why we encourage you to forgive one another, to support one another, to give generously to one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to live in unity together, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another. These are all ways that we love each other and love other people. This is why we want to be involved in community service or social justice. Or this is why we do special offerings to give to either people in our congregation or to give to needs around the world, famines or hurricanes or earthquakes. We want to show people love through these. We want to show Christ's love in tangible ways to other people who need it desperately. I want you to also think about what this would look like. What would it look like in our church? If we were a church that excelled at proclaiming truth in the context of sacrificial love, what would that look like? Where everyone's involved in this. What kind of witness would this be to the people in our community? Couldn't you see people just drawn to the church like a magnet? Because they find with us uncompromised truth and unwatered down love. Not because of anything in ourselves, but because of Jesus' love shown through us. Would we see revival? 
in our community, in our neighborhood, in our schools, at our workplaces? Could we be known as a church that's a lighthouse for truth and a safe house of love? That people can come no matter what's going on in their lives. I would love it if that's what we're known for. That's what we should be known for. Ultimately, proclaiming truth and loving other people are the methods for how we make disciples through Christ. At this point, I think that we need to back up a little bit and remind ourselves that we're nothing on our own. Because we can do all this. We can love other people. We can proclaim truth and try to make disciples. But we're nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the fourth reason, really the third point on your notes, that the reason the church exists. Without this, I believe that we would cease to exist. At least cease to exist effectively. And that's this, that God's church exists to pray continually. We need to, as a church, be all about prayer, praying frequently. In Ephesians 3, Paul makes it very clear how important prayer is just by praying publicly. In verse 12, he first of all says, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God in freedom and confidence. That's what we do through prayer. We approach God in freedom and with confidence. And then in verse 14, he says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Prayer is really how we ask God to work among us in making disciples. This is how we petition him. What does Paul pray for here? That we would be developed as strong disciples. That's what he prays. Through prayer, we tap into God's power through the Holy Spirit, relying on God's strength through prayer. It's really the only way we'll ever be effective as a church. Trying to be a church without prayer would be, trying to, would be like trying to get electricity from something that's not plugged in. Okay? This is what it would be like. Like last week, when it was really hot in his room, I tried to have the air conditioning going for a couple days beforehand, but sometime Friday night or Saturday morning, the fuse blew downstairs, and this air conditioner was not getting any power. And so when I came in Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, it was hot in here. And then we tried, largely unsuccessfully, to get the, the room cooled down, as many of you who are here know and can attest to by how wet your shirts were as you left. But this is because the air conditioner was powerless without the power coming from the fuse box. It had been flipped or it had it blown or something, and so it wasn't getting any power. And without prayer, our church is like that air conditioning unit. All its parts work. It's not broken, but it's useless. It's powerless because it's not truly tapped into the power source. As the church, if we have any dreams, any visions of us being a good church, 
We need God's power. We need him to work through us. We must truly pray all the time. This is emphasized all over Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul gives us the command to pray continually or without ceasing, without stopping. It's a nonstop attitude of reliance on God, an awareness of his presence, asking for his help. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that they constantly pray for the churches. Later in this book of Ephesians, when talking about the spiritual battle that we're in, Paul says this, in, first, or in Ephesians 6.18, says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To this end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, praying for all the saints. And pray also for me, that the gospel may go forth. All kinds of prayers. Pray with requests, confession, praise, thanksgiving, intercession, praying for other people. Lament. It's such a comfort, I think, that we are given a way to tap into God's power. This is grace. Because there's no way we could do this on our own. If we were in the army, we wouldn't try to go to war or to battle without our commanding officer. We need him. But God promises that in the battle, he will be there with us through prayer. No matter what battles come our way, what obstacles come up, God's there to help. The constant need for prayer is why we pray often whenever we get together. We make sure prayer is a big part of our worship services. It's why we have prayer meetings. It's why we try to pray at every kind of meeting we have from the smallest to the biggest. It's why prayer for each other is such an important and integral part of our small groups. It's why we need to keep prayer at the forefront of absolutely everything we do. Because we need God's power, not our own. There's one final way here that I want you to see. One major reason... The church exists, and I'd be very remiss not to bring this up. I've kept this one for last, but really, it should have been first. It's the most important, and it's the most important reason the church exists, and really, that any of us exist at all. The final thing we're going to see today is this, that God's church exists to worship God, to worship him. The most important reason the church exists is to worship or glorify God in everything we do. This really undergirds everything we've talked about so far. This is the ultimate reason we do any of these things. Why do we make disciples? Ultimately, to worship and glorify God. Why do we proclaim truth? Why do we love one another? To worship God. Why do we pray continually? Ultimately, to worship God. I think it's possible, though, to do all of these things and not consciously worship God. Not try to please Him. Not try to glorify Him. Imagine with me that you fell in love with someone. And you got married to them. And then once you were married, you started to do all these things for your spouse. You started talking about them to your friends, bragging about them, telling great stories about your spouse. You introduced a bunch of your friends to them, and they became friends with your spouse. You told stories... Like, you did amazing things. You gave gifts in their name to other people. Spent hours talking about your spouse. 
even talking to them. However, you did all of this heartlessly, without really meaning it. Once you were married, for whatever reason, you stopped loving them. And one day they tell you, honey, you do all these great things for me, but you don't love me. Why do you love me? Your heart isn't in it. You don't want to spend time with me. You don't want to do any of this for me. You do it all purely out of obligation, not love. What's wrong with that picture? Why do you say that's crazy? How can we do that? What's wrong with that picture? Well, we should be doing these things out of love, not obligation. When we truly love God with everything we are, that's true worship. Worship's more than a song. It's more than a prayer. It's more than a sermon. It's love. It's loving God with everything we are. That's its purest and greatest form, is worship. Throughout Scripture, we see time and time again what God wants, first and foremost, from us as Christians, is our love, our worship. Not our acts of service, not our good deeds, not our sacrifices. He wants us. In the book of Revelation, God spoke to seven different churches through the Apostle John. And to the church in Ephesus, the same church that we're looking at today that Paul spoke to, John said this, through, or Jesus said this through John, says, I know, I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. In other words, they were a pretty good church. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, love me again. Worship me again. Come back to that. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I believe it's possible to do all the right things and miss the heart of the matter. Miss the most important thing. Jesus once told people, we talked about the second greatest commandment earlier, he told people what the greatest commandment ever given from God to man was. Remember what it was? Go witness to everyone you know? No. Make sure you preach and listen to biblical sermons all the time? No. Hold constant prayer meetings or potlucks? (laughs) No. Love each other deeply, warmer, but no. What was it? Love me. Worship me. Glorify me. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. he says this, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That's the greatest commandment. That's the main reason we exist. We must always remember that this love of God needs to be the basis for everything we do. Why should we worship God? It's hard to even know where to start. 
we see two main reasons, that we worship God for who he is and for what he's done for us. For who he is as the sovereign and holy, transcendent, the awesome, loving, just, merciful God. And what he's done as the creator, the savior, redeemer, judge, king, friend. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has saved us, he's cleansed us, he's justified us. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit, empowered us, continually sanctifies us. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. He truly deserves all of our love, all of our worship. There are certain things we do as a church that the primary purpose of doing these things is to worship God. Things like singing songs of worship or celebrating communion regularly. But really everything we do should have the ultimate purpose of worshiping God. From the evangelism and the discipleship to proclaiming truth to loving one another to prayer. We do all of these things in order to worship God more. He is glorified in each of these things. Over the past little while, the deacons here and I have crafted a couple statements that we believe some of these principles of what I believe, what we believe is really important to us here at Calvary. What, the reasons we exist as a church. The reasons we, we do what we do as a church. We've had different mission statements over the years or vision statements, and there was nothing inherently wrong with them at all. Our mission really hasn't changed. But in order to communicate our purposes in a fresh way, in a memorable way, we've recreated them for our church now at this point in our history. I want to introduce them to you today. And these things, uh, they're easy to memorize. They're easy to uh, remember and to tell your friends. Why do you go to church? Why Why do we do what we do? And to keep us focused on the reasons we're here. Our mission statement really does. It explains the reasons why we're here and behind everything we do. We put it this way. It will be on the screen. Our mission is to glorify God. So the first thing we do, glorify God in everything, by making and developing increasingly devoted disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want everyone here in our church to buy into this mission. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. This is why we come to church, why we do church, why we are the church. Each of these aspects we've already explored in the message today. But I want to give you more than a mission. Really, what a mission is, is what we do in the present tense. This is what we're trying to accomplish in the present. I also want to give you a vision statement. And this is future tense. This is what we, it explains what we hope to see accomplished through our mission. Okay? And here it is. Our vision is to see people, you and others, transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in every area of life in order to see God's kingdom extended through their and your influence. Our vision is to see people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in every area of life in order to see God's kingdom extended through their influence. This is purposely generic because this will play out differently in every one of your lives. 
But can you see this? Can you see yourself or your friends, your family members, transformed by God's grace? By what he's done for us? Can you see God's kingdom being extended through your influence? Through our influence? Can you see people coming to faith by God using you to extend his kingdom? Can you see people growing in character and in godliness and holiness through your influence? Can you see this in yourself? I hope you can. This is our prayer for you. This is our prayer for all of us, for myself, for you, that this would play out in our lives. And we can, I believe we can see this happening in amazing and in glorious ways. Why do I say this? Because I think no matter how big we dream, no matter how much we can imagine God could do through us, it's too small. It's too small. Look at how Paul ends this passage in Ephesians. I didn't read the last couple verses of chapter 3 yet. In verse 20, says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. No matter what you can envision, no matter how big it is for us or for our church or in yourself, our God is bigger. He can do greater things. What we can see is way too small. We all live under the same sky. We may all have different horizons in our minds for what we can accomplish. But God, He created the sky. He created the horizons. And really, there are no horizons with him. There are no limits with our God. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And then he says, our ultimate purpose, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let the glory of his name be the passion of our church in the present and in the future. Let's pray. Lord, you are so great to us. You have done so much for us. We stand in awe of you as our God. We know we're weak. We know we're, our strength is low. We're nothing without you. We need your power. We pray that you would fill us, that you would empower us to accomplish your purposes here on earth. And that you would be honored in what we do, you'd be glorified, you'd be worshipped in everything that we do, in each of our lives and in our corporate life as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name.